This is your friend, David E. Taylor. In a dream that was given to someone near me, it was shown to me that the Broncos are going to win this 2014 Super Bowl, February the 2nd. Now, the reason why I come to you on this camera is because I like to tell you about events before they take place and especially to help you understand that when you see dreams in your sleep, it don't just have to be me. It can be anybody around you that God is forecasting the future. I like that forecasting the future. So one of the future forecasts in the next few days is that the Broncos are going to win this Super Bowl that is about to take place against the Seattle Hawks or the Seahawks. I'm not abreast up on football. I'm not aware of a lot of things that go on there. But because sports is so huge to human beings in America, I believe God is also trying to show them that he knows the forecast of the future in every arena of life. And so to all the football fans out there, to all you football players, I'm just letting you know that the Broncos are going to win this Super Bowl coming up this Sunday. Another detail that was given in another dream to another person around me is that the score was 24 to 21. Now, I'm not sure how accurate those details are. I'm just stating them. Again, I didn't have these dreams. People around me had them. And I understand by the spirit, the interpretation of these dreams. And I know them to be true, especially the one that the Broncos are going to win the Super Bowl. Now, the score that is going to be 24 to 21, I don't know. I can't tell you if that's accurate or not. But someone dreamed the score would be 24 to 21. But I haven't got a witness in my spirit from the Holy Spirit that that is true. But the first dream that I got, the Holy Spirit has bore witness to me that the Broncos will win this Super Bowl. Thank you. All right, I'll explain that in a minute. Turn to Romans chapter 8 in your Bibles, and the guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible, just get their attention, and they'll get one of those to you, marked for you at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, you have to give it up for the guy in the video clip. He said he wasn't sure about that score of 24 to 21. He said he could not confirm that that dream that someone had had was accurate because, quote, I haven't got a witness in my spirit from the Holy Spirit that that particular detail is true. And there's a good reason that he didn't get confirmation from the Holy Spirit on that. Because the final score was not 24-21, but instead was 43-8. So that dream about the score was apparently not a message from the Holy Spirit. But our friend on the video, and he did say, this is your friend. He did confirm that the Holy Spirit was predicting the winner. Even though he said, I know nothing about football, because when the Spirit tells you something, you don't need any knowledge. 
And so he was certain, based upon what the Spirit had revealed through the dream to his friend, that he is confirming that the Broncos would win the Super Bowl that year. And the score was 43-8. to So who had 43 and who had 8? Here's the uh, final score. Now, I showed you that because I'm ticked about it. I'm ticked about it uh, partly because I listened to that guy and I lost a bunch of money on the game. (laughs) Not really. I didn't listen to him and I didn't bet on the game. But seriously, this, this raises an issue that we need to understand clearly. Because many people are confused about matters like this one. I say good people are confused, but the person in that video is not a good person. He's a charlatan who operates out of the city of Taylor, not far from us. And if you YouTube prophet, so-called prophet David Taylor, you'll see all the shenanigans this man has pulled to deceive people. But many good people do struggle with whether God is telling them something. Whether the Holy Spirit is sending them a message through a dream or a set of circumstances or an impression or an internal prompting. But the Bible makes clear that you cannot identify a specific work of God apart from the Word of God. When miracles, for example, were performed in the Bible, they were not self-interpreting. But they required not only the event, but God's interpretation of that event. For example, on the occasion where Jesus prayed to the Father and he said, Father, glorify your name. The Bible tells us in John 12 that a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, the Bible's telling us the interpretation of what happened there. It's the voice of the Father speaking to the Son as he walked the earth and saying, I have glorified it, I will glorify it again. But then the passage goes on to say the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So it's not enough to just have the phenomenon, to just have the event. We need God's interpretation of what's happening, of that event. You see a similar situation in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He had healed a man who was lame. And here's how the crowd interpreted that. Acts 14 says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, healing a man who was lame, they shouted, the gods have come down to us in human form. And they had actually given Greek god names to Paul and his associate Barnabas. So how can you know when God the Holy Spirit is at work? How can you know whether a feeling you have about someone or something or a decision you have to make is in fact from the Holy Spirit? Well, today we continue the series begun three weeks ago. Myths that Christians believe about the Holy Spirit, about angels, about demons. Now, we normally go through a book of the Bible, but I'm doing a topical series because the schedule over the next few weeks is uneven. We started this series three weeks ago. The following week was Easter. Last week, I was away. Next Sunday is going to be a Mother's Day message. And then for two weeks, we'll continue this series. And then we have a guest speaker on June 2nd. We'll finish this series on June 9th. Then there's Father's Day. <laughs> and then we can start a new book of the Bible. So starting June 23rd, we'll begin a study in the book of Jonah. And then in the fall, a study through the book of Revelation. 
So one reason I'm doing a topical series is because of the choppy schedule. But I'm doing this particular topical series because of pastoral concerns. These are matters that I hear folks talk about not infrequently and not always in biblically accurate ways. And so let's bow and ask the Lord to help us then as we look at this important issue. Father, we thank you for gathering us now. We're in your presence with your word open. We ask you then to speak to us, speak to us your truth from the pages of the book that you have given to guide us. Grant us attentive minds and open hearts. Change us so that we can better glorify you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, as each week, we have inserted in your program an outline of the message. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. And this message is about what we know regarding the work of the Holy Spirit. So the outline has at the top, we know, followed by three things that we know. And the first is this, we know the Spirit's work by its effects. Verse 15 of Romans chapter 8. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. We know the Spirit's work by what it accomplishes by the consequences of it, by the effects of it. And one of those effects is to, I say in the outline, move us to intimacy. The spirit we receive, the moment that we're converted, does not subject us to fear and anxiety regarding judgment like we experienced before we came to Christ. As children of God, instead of having the fear of God's eternal wrath, we have the assurance that he's brought us into a family relationship through adoption. Now, the Bible here, when it speaks of adoption, is reaching into Roman law and it's taking a custom that was familiar to the people at that time and saying that this is what, like what God has done with us. We have been adopted. Now, there are a number of aspects of the laws at that time that governed adoption that could be addressed, but there are two primary issues that it's important for us to understand. When someone was removed from one family and placed into another family, two things took place. They had to appear before court and renounce all rights from the family that they were leaving. They gave up all inheritance, all privileges, everything to become a member of another family. Secondly, because they gave up everything, Roman law said that the one who is adopted can never, ever be disinherited. And when you came to Christ and you made your commitment to him, you gave up all ties to the family from which you came. I'm not talking about your birth family, your physical family. But rather, the Bible teaches that every man or woman is born into the same family that Jesus accused the Pharisees of being part of. We are of our father, the devil, before we come to Christ. But when Christ touched us and brought us into his family, all ties with the old are severed. And because of that, we can never be disinherited. Thanks be to God. But none of that helps you. None of that helps you to live the Christian life if you're not aware of it. And the Spirit plays an indispensable role in making those truths real to every genuine believer. God's Spirit not only makes us aware of our position in the family of God because we've been adopted by God into His family, but He moves us to speak to God on the basis of that family relationship. That's why the end of verse 15 says, 
It's by the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. We can now address God with terms of endearment. Abba, Father. Two words there. The first one is the Aramaic word that Jesus, in all probability, used when he taught us to pray, Our Father. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Our Father. And then there's the Greek word pater, which means Father. Abba, or Father. And these terms represent what one has called respectful intimacy. It's not a flippancy with God. He is still our Father, our Abba in heaven. So it's not flippant. And it's not so familiar as Daddy or Papa. But instead, accords the respect to God that the Hebrew and Roman cultures of the day would have accorded to a human father. But both of these terms do indicate that we have a position of love and intimacy with God the Father, and we can approach Him with confidence and with this respectful intimacy. I can testify to you that I find myself often spontaneously thanking the Lord for loving me, saving me, and caring for me even though I don't deserve it. Believers regularly reflect upon and thank God the Father for the work of God the Son. And that reflection and that gratitude is done because of the work of God the Holy Spirit in the lives of His children. So the Holy Spirit moves us to intimacy. Secondly, He moves us to assurance. Verse 16 says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. This is teaching that the Spirit of God internally convinces us of the reality of our standing before God. A pastor friend of mine wrote his master's thesis on this subject of assurance. How does a Christian have assurance of his or her salvation? Know that we are assuredly in the family of God. Well, he distilled all of the biblical teachings down to three simple points. The first is this. Genuine believers understand and embrace the promises of the Word of God about who we are in Jesus. Secondly, genuine believers endeavor to live in obedience to the Word of God as described in places like the five chapters of the book of 1 John. They seek to live in obedience and in accordance with sound doctrine and moral living and love for fellow Christians and so on. And then thirdly, the Spirit, based upon the Christian's understanding of the Word and obedience to the Word, the Spirit witnesses, that gives assurance that we are truly the children of God. Now, friends, this is a supernatural work, to have a relationship with God and to delight in it. To know that you have a relationship with God, that you are a son or daughter of God, and to delight in that relationship such that spontaneously you cry out to God, Abba, Father, in gratitude for, to Him for what He has done for us. It can only be achieved by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, it's an indication that we have the Holy Spirit and that we are genuinely God's children. We know the Spirit's work by its effects. And secondly, we know that it's the Spirit's work because the Scripture says so. So we know the Spirit's work by what it does, by its effects. But then how do I know that it's actually the work of the Spirit? Because the Scripture tells me 
what the work of the Spirit is. Verse 14 of Romans chapter 8. Those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. Now, there are all kinds of misconceptions about the leading of the Spirit. You can turn on the religious television, cable channels. You can do that. You shouldn't. But you can. But guys like we saw earlier are all over the airwaves. But if you do, you can hear the televangelists talk about hearing God. People in general talk about hearing or seeing God. Others, not quite as extreme, talk about being led by uh, reading signs in their lives circumstantial kinds of signs. They look at all the circumstances and they say, I have to figure out what God's leading me to do here. So what does it mean to be led by the Spirit of God? Well, in all of the New Testament, there are only two verses that talk about Christians being led by the Spirit of God. One of them is here. In both contexts, it's talking about the same thing. And in both of those, it's contrasting those who are unbelievers who do what the flesh or the sinful nature tells them to do versus those who are Christians. And they are Christians because they've committed to obey the truth. We know this in Romans chapter 8 because verse 14 begins with the word for. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. That is, for or because. It's explaining what precedes. And I want you to notice what comes before that. In chapter 8. Look at verse 9. You are not in the realm of the flesh. But are in the realm of the spirit. Verse 9. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ. They do not belong to Christ. Verse 12. Therefore brothers and sisters. We have an obligation. But it's not to the flesh. To live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh. You will die. But if you live by. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And then verse 14 says, For, because those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. To be led by the Spirit simply means you're committed to live in a godly way. It has nothing to do with how you make decisions. It has nothing to do with you getting particular revelation at a particular time about a particular matter. The only other passage in the Bible where this phrase led by the spirit of use is used is in Galatians chapter five and verse 18. It says, if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. You can know what led by the spirit means by looking at other descriptions given in that chapter in Galatians chapter five. For example, verse 16 of that same chapter, just two verses before it says, if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. It says, walk by the spirit. And then we have in verse 18, led by the Spirit. And then a few verses later in verse 25, live by the Spirit. So walk, led, live. They're all saying the same thing, that the Holy Spirit moves Christians into godly living. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. All this talk about how we should live and that Christians live a godly life could tempt us to think that the Christian life is one of just keeping rules of laws So that's why at the end of Galatians 5.18, it says, if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under law. We don't live godly lives because we have to. Or because if we don't, we're liable to the penalty of breaking a rule. 
But friends, believers who have the Spirit of God and who have had their lives changed and who have been adopted into His family live for God because we want to and we want to because of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This work of the Holy Spirit and followers of Christ bears fruit. It shows up. It has evidence. As in the well-known fruit of the Spirit. Which actually appears in that very same chapter, in Galatians chapter 5. And you know this passage, many of you, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Being led by the Spirit means displaying these kinds of qualities in our lives. And the Holy Spirit produces these in Christians. It's interesting, and this is just observation, it's just anecdotal, I admit. But my experience is that many of the people who speak most loudly about being led by the Spirit are very often people who don't display these kinds of qualities in their lives. Please hear this. We know that we have the Spirit because we see Him at work in us in these ways. And we know that because the Scripture tells us so. We can know that obedience is due to the Spirit's work because Scripture scripture says it is. We can know that the fruit of the Spirit is His work because Scripture says it is. Now I stress that we know what the Spirit does since the Bible tells us what He does because so many people claim the Holy Spirit is doing things that they have no real way of knowing. They attribute things to the Holy Spirit that they have no biblical basis for saying the Holy Spirit is doing. Now most of you know that I was raised Pentecostal. And so I heard all sorts of activity attributed to the Spirit as a child and a teenager. That the Holy Spirit was doing things in people like he did with the apostles. Directly communicating truth to them in prophecies or directly causing them to speak in unintelligible languages called speaking in tongues and many other supposed manifestations of the Holy Spirit. Three weeks ago when we started this series, we looked at the calling and career of the apostles and how unique that that was. And so if you weren't able to listen to that, it's on our website. I would encourage you to do that. But even since that time, though I'm no longer a a Pentecostal, I still hear people attribute to the work of the Spirit things that go well beyond the Scriptures and what they tell us about His work. For many Christians, if they have an impression about someone or a prompting to do something, it must be the Holy Spirit. I've known non-Pentecostal people who nevertheless believe the Holy Spirit gives them a sense of another person's character. I had one guy tell me years ago that he could tell whether someone was spiritual the moment he shook their hand. Because the Spirit was impressing that on him in that moment. I was speaking to a Christian co-worker years ago and sharing with him a truth that I had learned from Scripture. Something that was contrary to what he had previously believed. He thought that what I was saying had the ring of truth, not because he was looking at the Scriptures with me, but because, according to him, quote, the Spirit was testifying to him that what I was saying was true. Now, do you see when he said that, the Spirit's bearing witness is testifying. He's referring back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. But he's using it in a way that Romans 8, 16 does not. And what all of these have in common is they're all ways of knowing that the Spirit is at work apart from what the Bible tells us about the Spirit's work. 
Friends, God the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of God's children all the time. Thanks be to God. He does all the things that the Bible says he does for us. We should not be afraid to make intelligent evaluations and life decisions because we know that God is at work in our lives every moment of every day. And that's why Philippians 2.13 can say it is God who works in you to will, that is to desire, and then to act upon those desires in order to fulfill his good purpose. You can know and have confidence that the Spirit of God is at work in you, but you cannot know the specific ways he's doing that apart from what he tells us he does in Scripture. You can't know what the Holy Spirit is doing apart from what the Scriptures tell us He does. And remember, it was the Holy Spirit Himself who gave us the Scriptures. And so Peter said, Scripture came about as men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the scriptures, my friends, are sufficient to guide us into every good action and every good decision and every good direction that we should undertake. The scriptures are sufficient to guide us into every one of those things. And the scriptures say that about the scriptures. All scripture is God-breathed and is given so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for and notice every good work. So if you have a good feeling about someone or something, just say that. You know, I got a good feeling about that person. I got a good feeling about this decision. Just say that. If you have a bad feeling about someone or something, just say that. If it's a bad feeling about somebody, don't say it in front of other people. Now, the wisdom of following your feelings and making judgments in that way is a whole other matter. But whatever you do, don't attribute to the Holy Spirit what he does not say he does. Now, why do I care enough about this to belabor it as I have? You see, if God communicates to you outside of Scripture, then how can you know he's not communicating to others outside of Scripture? How do you know the Holy Spirit is not testifying to someone's spirit about the score of the Super Bowl? Now, you might say, well, that's just dumb. Well, it's not dumb if he's right. (laughs) And in fact, if the Holy Spirit tells us stuff outside of Scripture or gives us impressions about stuff outside of Scripture, you could make a lot of money just passing that information on to others. We could advance the mission of the Lord with those funds, so why not? It's because that's not how the Spirit has told us that He operates. If you go outside the Scriptures, hear this, you have no basis for denying the claims of anyone who says God spoke to them or impressed something upon them or prompted them. So go with what you know. And what you know comes from the Bible, comes from Scripture. We know the Spirit's work by what it does, by its effects. We know it's the Spirit's work because the Scriptures say it is. And then thirdly, we know how He works from God's Word. We know how He works. What we've seen so far is that He works. But then the question is, by what means does He do His work? Does the Holy Spirit carry out this work? How does He do it? 
Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16 tell us the spirit testifies with our spirit, but doesn't tell us how he does it. That is, it doesn't tell us what, if any, means he uses to affect our assurance and our intimacy. But whenever the Bible does tell us what means the Spirit uses to communicate to us, it's always by means of the Word of God. I'd like to show that to you with just a couple of examples that I have in your outline. The first is this, the Holy Spirit calls us to salvation by the power of the gospel. We see that in passages like 2 Thessalonians chapter chapter 2. God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel. And so when we were saved, we all experienced at a moment in time, having heard the good news of the gospel message, we all experienced what theologians call the effectual call. That is the call of the gospel to turn to Christ, to receive the forgiveness that he offers, to turn from sin and to him. And that call upon those God has chosen has effect. And so it's called the effectual call. Every time the gospel message goes out, there is a general call to everybody. But it's effective in those who believe. And if you belong to Jesus right now, at some time in the past, you experienced the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. It had effect upon you. It was the work of the Holy Spirit doing this, but it was done through the gospel, the gospel message. That's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the great apostle Paul could say, when I came to you in my ministry, when I gave the gospel to you, it was not just words of men, but it came to you in power. How did he know it was in power? Because he says of the effect it had on you. The effectual call had its effect, made a difference in their lives so that they turned from idols to serve the true and living God. Holy Spirit calls us by the power of the gospel. Secondly, he convicts us by the scriptures. His calling is by the message of the gospel, his conviction at salvation, and we'll see in an ongoing way, is by what the scriptures teach. Jesus said, on the night before he was crucified, he was preparing his apostles for what was going to happen the next day. And you remember beginning in John chapter 13, as he washed the apostles' feet, and then going into chapter 14, he said, Stop letting your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he began to then comfort their hearts. And one of the ways he comforted them was later in that chapter, in chapter 14, promising them that his presence was going to be with them because God, the Holy Spirit, was going to minister to them. When you come to chapter 16, all on the same night, five chapters devoted to one night, uh, one night, you come to chapter 16 and Jesus says this, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world. Concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I, Jesus, am sending you apostles out with my message. But fear not. For God, the Holy Spirit, is going to be with you. I'm physically going to be absent, but God is going to be with you. And as God is with you, he's going to give you what to say. And I showed you three weeks ago that that belonged to them, not to you, not to me. He doesn't give me directly what to say. He told them what to say. They wrote down much of what Jesus said and what they said, and thus we have it in the Bible. But when you go out with this message, 
Have confidence because the Holy Spirit is going to do this work when you preach this message. He's going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so do not fear. Go with confidence because I am with you. And now as you move forward in biblical history, the apostles do that. and They go and they establish the church and they, they preach the word and people are converted. The Holy Spirit does his work of convicting people of sin, but he does that through the proclamation of the word. And now later you have the apostle Paul writing to one of his pastoral associates, Titus. And he's telling Titus in the first chapter of the book by that name, the book of Titus, what the qualifications are for one who would be a pastor. And he says in the midst of those qualifications this, a pastor must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can, the NIV says refute, it's the same word for convict, those who oppose it. And so you've now been given the scriptures, says Paul to Titus. You use those scriptures to convict those who are unbelievers And therefore, oppose what you're doing. So we know the Spirit's work. And how it happens is namely through the means of using the Scriptures. The gospel message to bring us to Christ. The gospel message to convict those who are outside of of Christ and oppose the message. And then in an ongoing way, in the life of those who have come to Christ, the Holy Spirit uses the Scriptures to do the same thing. This conviction happens because, Jesus said in John 16, it's a work of the Spirit. And here's what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for these four things, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, you've got four things there. You've got teaching, and then the word is translated rebuking. Same word as refute back in Titus chapter 1. Same word as convict back in John chapter 16 and verse 8. So all scriptures God breathed is useful for teaching, convicting, correcting, and training in righteousness. And Jesus told us that this convicting work happens by the Holy Spirit. And here we're being told that it happens by means of the word of God. The Holy Spirit does his communicating work to unbelievers and believers alike. Through the word of God. Just as an aside, notice those four things. They're in a logical order. We're taught the word of God. We're taught the truth. The mirror of the word of God is held up in front of us and we see the gap that exists between the holy character of God and ourselves. And whenever that happens, there's there's this distance between where we should be and where we are and that results then in this conviction. The Holy Spirit turning the light on in something called illumination that I talked about three weeks ago so that we understand that that is the truth. We believe that's the truth. We embrace that. We want to be that. We're convicted. But we've fallen, and the Word of God doesn't just leave us there. All scriptures, God breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking or convicting. If it just put a period after that, we would be in a miserable state. But our gracious God gives us in His Word the means by which we correct our fallen state. So we failed, we've fallen, we're convicted of that. To correct means to cause to stand something which has previously fallen. And then the Bible gives us instructions on how to develop discipline, training, and righteousness in order to continue in godliness. Now the Spirit does this work by the means of the Word. It's mysterious illumination. That's a term we use. 
the Holy Spirit working upon the mind of an unbeliever to cause them to see the beauty of the gospel, the Holy Spirit working upon the mind and heart of a believer in order to convict them and to move them on to, to godliness. Illumination is a supernatural work, and so there's mystery associated with that. But please hear this. It's not mystical. Mysterious, but not mystical. What's that mean? Mysterious just means there's stuff about it none of us can understand because it's supernatural. Mystical means that God does it bypassing the mind, and that doesn't happen. God uses the means of his word upon the mind of an unbeliever bringing them to salvation, on a believer advancing them in sanctification, and he always uses the mind in the process. We are going to see that in detail two weeks from now. Now, perhaps you're one who thinks, you know, in churches that I've been in, we just don't talk about the work of the Spirit enough. And here you are, pastor, you know. You finally decide to talk about the Holy Spirit, and you're telling me all the things the Spirit doesn't do. Well, I've told you a number of things the Spirit does do and the means by which he does it. One. We also have a section on the Holy Spirit in one of our foundational classes that we encourage every person to take in our church called Master Plan for Life. We had an entire semester devoted to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in our community institute. And we have Dr. Mark Snowberger scheduled to come and teach on this very topic for 12 weeks this fall. So it's important that we know who God the Holy Spirit is and what God the Holy Spirit does. But friends, it's also important to remember what Jesus said. And here's what he said. The Holy Spirit will glorify me. You see, the reason we talk about Christ so much is because the word that the Holy Spirit inspired does that. And the work of the Holy Spirit is designed to point us not to him, but to Christ. Jesus said that. The Spirit's work is for us to revel in Christ's work. That he has made possible, that Christ has made possible our adoption into the family of God. The Spirit's work is for us to love that and embrace that and cherish that and to be grateful for that and to live in light of that. And if we don't find ourselves breathing prayer to our Father regularly, then it's evident, friends, that the Spirit is not at work. So myth number one in this series regarding the Holy Spirit was that he reveals truth to us apart from his word three weeks ago. And myth number two today is what I have at the top of your outline. That the Holy Spirit's work can be known apart from the word. It's a myth. Your take-home truth is this. We know the Spirit's work because it's contained in the word and it's accomplished with the word. And we're going to bow in prayer. And as we do, let's thank God for the work of God, the Holy Spirit. Let's thank God for God's word, the means by which the Holy Spirit accomplishes this work. And for those of you who may be here who have never been adopted into the family of God, that's done by means of God, the Holy Spirit, convicting you of where you are, And pointing you to where you need to be. 
And where you are is where all of us were at one time, outside the family of God. But because of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, he bids you to accept what he has done on your behalf and thereby be brought into the family of God. And what has he done? He lived a perfect life, the life that you and I were supposed to live. He not only lived a perfect life, but he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, having not lived that perfect life. And both of those, when you come to him, are applied to you in that sacred moment. His life and his death. So that God no longer looks at you through your sin, but looks at you through the perfect life of Jesus. And all of your sin was paid by him on the cross, past, present, and future. And so from that day forward, you have this absolute assurance, I belong to God. And the Holy Spirit uses those promises in Scripture to grant us that assurance in an ongoing way. Friend, if you would like to be part of the family of God today, if you see that you're outside of the family of God, if you believe who Jesus is and what he did, when we bow and pray, you can receive Christ as Savior and you can bow your heart and life before him as your Lord. And so you say to him, I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus lived for me and he died for me. I ask you to apply what Jesus did to me personally. I give my life to you. I'm going to go your way, God. No longer go my way. And thereby you receive Jesus Christ into your life. His Holy Spirit begins his work in you. Let's bow together before the Lord. Our Father, we thank you for... This time to look at your word, to be taught words that your Holy Spirit has spoken and given to us and uses in order to bring us to you and the call of the gospel, in order to make us like you in the work of ongoing sanctification. And so, Lord, I thank you that you have done this work in my life and are continuing this work. Thank you at the age of 19, in my bedroom, One night reading the word of God, that the Holy Spirit turned the light on for me. And the effectual call was carried out in my mind and heart. And you drew me out of the world into yourself. And so now I see things differently from the perspective of your word by your spirit. I thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in an ongoing way all these many years to convict me of sin. To move on my mind and heart to remind me of what Jesus Christ has done for me. Move me to cry out, Abba, Father, thank you for who you are and what you have done. And I thank you for doing that work in so many of my brothers and sisters here. So that we are now no longer outside your family, but you have welcomed us in, adopted us into your family. We cannot be disinherited. Lord, we ask you, God the Holy Spirit, Move upon any here who came without being in your family. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to bring them to yourself by doing your convicting work upon them, your good convicting work upon them, and turning them toward the good news of Jesus and what he has done for us. Father, because of this, we want to go forth cherishing your word and cherishing the Holy Spirit who makes application of the truths of your word to our hearts as we think about those, as we revel in those. And Lord, we will give you praise with our lives and with our lips and for bringing others to yourself because all the glory belongs to you. 
We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.